evening to you. Second Chronicles chapter 22 this evening, our journey through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, you'll be fairly lost on Sunday nights without one. So the men coming up the aisles right now, they have Bibles. You just get their attention by waving to them. They'll put one in your hands and then you can hear the word of God and uh, be able to read it with your own eyes, which is always the best way. Second Chronicles chapter 22, uh, chapter 21 ended with the death of a king by the name of Jehoram. And uh, King Jehoram was a particularly evil son of a very, very godly king by the name of Jehoshaphat. And uh, God brought him to an end when nobody else had uh, the power to end his reign. God has ways of uh, bringing an evil life to an end so that more people aren't infected with their evil. And so he did with this king and uh, his son by the name of Ahaziah then followed him as the next king of Judah. And we're told in verse uh, one of chapter 22, then the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, his youngest son, king in his place for the raiders who came with the Arabians into the camp had killed all of the older sons, as we read about last week. And so Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, he reigned. And Ahaziah was 42 years old when he became king. He reigned one year, a short reign in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri. And so when we see that he was 42 years old in verse 2 when he became king, not possible for that to be the case. It should actually be 22 years, as you probably see in the margins of most of your Bibles. So evidently a copyist error there. His mother... Being Athaliah was one of the daughters of Ahab and Jezebel, just a particularly despicable couple in in human history. And we're told in verse three that he walked in the ways of the house of Ahab. So even though he was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, had a godly grandfather in Jehoshaphat because his father had married into the family of Ahab and Jezebel in the north uh, in Israel. They became the influence now um, in his life. And so he walked in the ways of the house of Ahab and for his mother advised him to do wickedly. And so <clears throat> evidently following the death of his father, <clears throat> his mother continued to live on. Excuse me a moment. My throat is rebelling against talking about Ahab and Jezebel. There's, not, there's nothing I like about them. But so she survives and um, he continues to uh, allow her to be an influence in his life. He's the king. He makes her one of the counselors. Certainly one of the worst things, one of the worst legacies a mother can have. Uh, is when the mother then uh, gives evil counsel to the child and leads uh, her uh, children into a life of wickedness and rebellion against God. God is able to, was able to give Ahaziah 
all that he needed to break away from that influence and be a godly king. So we're thankful that tonight, if that's your portion, raised by a mother who led you into evil and exposed you to evil, it doesn't mean that the die is cast for where our life has to go in life. What it means is, as soon as we come to know the Lord and know the right way, is that we need to break that person off in our life as any means of influence or counsel uh, in our lives. And so he uh, failed to do that. And therefore he did, as a result of this counsel, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab, for they were his counselors after the death of his father, and they were his counselors, we take note of, to his destruction. And so he made the house of Ahab, those that were relatives of Ahab, uh, he surrounded himself with these people, though the king of Judah. And so he's just he has deliberately surrounded himself with very, very uh, evil people, very, very evil associations. And we're told candidly that this led to his destruction. Now, every leader and we say, well, I'm not a king, uh, but all of us are to be leaders uh, in this world, the body of Christ, we don't follow in this world. If we are followers in this world, then we're going to be led into all kinds of sin and we're going to be led into judgment. So the Bible says that we, as we walk with God, we are the head, we are not the tail. So whatever our capacity is, uh, we are to lead in, in life. And no matter what the capacity that God has called us to lead in, but certainly when you look at a king or these these kind of positions of leadership, no single individual can know everything about everything. Every leader is dependent upon uh, their advisors, those that are strong in areas that they are, are weak in or ill informed in in order to receive good uh, good counsel. So. Uh, because all of us need that kind of advice, we need that kind of input, it becomes very, very important that all of us make sure that our influences are very, very godly. And so here we have a man who uh, allowed wicked influences to, uh, in, in the form of relationships to lead to his destruction. You think about how that's the legacy of so many. It's as true today as it ever was true 3,000 years ago. How many human lives are led into destruction every day by ungodly influences? Those of you who are in law enforcement, you see it every day. Uh, those of you who are in public education, any education, those of you who are in so social services, and you see here is a person, a child, you can almost see in terms of what their environment is, that they're going to be surrounded by evil influences. And though they have a heart to go a different way, that they're going to be absolutely overwhelmed by the influences that are around them. And how often then you see them two years, five years, ten years later, and their life is virtually already destroyed as a result of it. So this is the importance of who we allow to be influential in our lives. So it's not it's a point in the Bible. And because it's a point in the Bible, it should be a weighty point with us. But sometimes you make a point like this from the Bible and people's they're just their brains glaze over and their eyes glaze over. And it's like, OK, I've been hearing that ever since I was 12 years old, but it's still the truth. 
And the reason that it needs to be repeated is apparently people are not learning this in significant enough numbers because the casualties are everywhere. And it's not just today person to person relationships. In those days, you could really only be influenced in an ungodly way by another person. They had no iPods. They had no Internet. Uh, very few people could read, and even those that could read didn't have access to reading material. Everything was done by copyist. I mean, to have a copy of anything was a, a treasure for the average man in those days. And so they, so they didn't have these kind of things that have become uh, significant influencers today. So you have uh, children and youth today that are being virtually raised by technology, planted in front of television as soon as... That television can be a babysitter exposed to God knows what in terms of the content, but just even the images and the, and the movement of the images, the speed of the images, it fa it's fashioning human beings. They know this now about the human, the human mind. And so you've got the television, you've got the Internet, you've got books, you've got magazines, you've got radio, you've got all kinds of movies and, and all kinds of media that's going on. And, and so for them, they wouldn't think of those things. We have to carry it not only from the human element to this other element as well. And to make sure that I'm not allowing in my life ungodly influences Allowing myself to be influenced by the ungodly, whatever the form that it's taken. Because God isn't kidding when, when he says this is something that leads many, many people into destruction. And so tonight we can take in just the quick moment that we're sitting here and just run through uh, any relatives that we have. Do we have a mother or a father? that is leading us into wickedness or some kind of a blood relative. Jesus said, you've got to love me more than those blood relationships. And, and when I say you need to go a certain way and my word says this, you've got to love me more than them trying to pull you into that other direction. And a lot of times to walk with God and to be faithful with God, uh, sometimes human relationships are going to be, become a casualty related to that. But in terms of uh, it, 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 any relationship that is healthy will never be harmed by our love for the Lord because our relationship with other people will become stronger with the right kind of people because of our faithfulness to the Lord. And so to just sit here and run through the list of our friends, run through the list of, of the channels that are set to this or that, whether in the car, in the home, or whatever it might be, and to say, what, what is the greatest influence in my life? And if the Bible, the Word of God, in the hands of the Holy Spirit, is not the single greatest influence in my life as a Christian, then I am not, I'm, if I am not headed for serious trouble, I am missing, by a country mile, the life that God has intended for me. This book is to be the single great influence in our, in our lives. That's what keeps us healthy and in entering into the life that God has for us. And so these things, I see we, we read about it all the time, the proliferation of gangs and, you know, again, who we hang out with in life, whether a, a youth or whether an adult, all of these things are influencing us and affecting us. And, and so here is a, war, a warning from God's word. I like in terms of, of proper counsel, you can't beat Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. 
God just says, that's just a blessed life. You have no idea how much aggravation you're going to be spared by making that kind, making a godly people your influencers and not walking in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall also not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. That sounds uh, pretty great to me. Verse 5. And he also followed their advice, and he went to Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of uh, Israel. So his uncle, who is the king in the northern kingdom of Israel, and his uncle engaged him to join him in a war against Haziel, king of Syria, at Ramoth Gilead. And while they were in battle together, again, this ungodly association uh, drags him into a war that he has no part of, uh, of being in. And so while they were in the battle, Jehoram uh, was severely wounded uh, by the Syrians. And he returned to Jezreel, probably the location of his winter palace, in order to recover from the wounds which he had received at Ramah when he fought against uh, Haziel, king of Syria. And Azariah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, he went down uh, to visit his uncle uh, in Jezreel because he was sick, he was wounded. And his going to Joram was God's occasion for Ahaziah's downfall, for when he arrived, he went out with Jehoram against Jehu, uh, the son of Nimshi, whom the Lord had anointed to cut off the house of Ahab. So this is a classic case of the wrong place at the wrong time. God had raised up a man we might remember from Second Kings. God had raised up a man by the name of Jehu to utterly annihilate the entire bloodline of Ahab. God did not want the evil influence of that bloodline in human history uh, to uh, exist. And so Jehu was called to wipe that bloodline out. And so he was busy doing that. And he and he goes there and uh, 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 then kills the king uh, of the northern kingdom of Israel. And then who's showing up from the south? Ahaziah, who happens to be of the bloodline of Ahab. And so Jehu then proceeds to kill uh, his blood relatives that are with him and to kill Ahaziah as well. And it happened when Jehu was executing judgment on the house of Ahab, and he found the princes of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah's brothers who served Ahaziah, that he killed them as a part of his uh, obedience to God's command. And then he searched for Ahaziah, and they caught him. He was hiding in Samaria. They brought him to Jehu, and when they had killed him, they buried him because they said, he is the son of Jehoshaphat. So they didn't just leave him out like they would leave out animals. Because of the godliness of his, his grandfather, they gave him a proper burial uh, because Jehoshaphat sought the Lord with all of his heart. And so the house of Ahaziah had no one to assume power over the kingdom. And so here is a classic case of the importance of not aligning ourselves with evil people or ungodly people because God's judgment hangs over their lives. 
And we never know when God is going to take and execute his judgment upon people in whatever form it may take. It may take the form of death or, or war or something like this, or it may take the form of him just coming in and blowing up the whole ungodly financial empire that the person has built up or whatever it might be, the Ponzi scheme. But we don't have to worry about those things If we separate ourselves from that kind of person, then we don't need to worry. When is God's judgment going to fall on this situation? Because I'm not a part of the situation. So to be separated again, it's a life of of peace. And uh, Ahaziah, again, because of his wrong alliances, he found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. Lots of people do. And he was in the wrong place when God's judgment fell down upon the wicked. Now, when Athaliah, the mother, she was a daughter of of, uh, Ahab and Jezebel, uh, the mother of Ahaziah, she saw that her son was killed by Jehu. Uh, She arose and she destroyed all of the royal heirs of the house of Judah. And so when she hears about the death of her son, uh, she quickly moves to seize control of the nation. She destroys all of the royal heirs. Uh, of uh, that are next in line for the king and uh, which would have meant uh, one of her grandsons would have been enthroned as one of the sons of Ahaziah but in order to secure power and uh, she ordered the death of all of the males who could make a legitimate claim to the throne including her own grandchildren I mean just imagine here's a woman who can just cold-bloodedly murder her grandchildren, in order to secure power and to hold on to power. I mean, she just shows herself to be as, as wicked as her mother was, uh, the wicked Jezebel. And so this is what she did. But uh, Jehoshabeth, that's a name, isn't it, for kindergarten right there? How many letters there do you count? That's got about, a, uh, how, that's got two-thirds of the alphabet in it, doesn't it? You get that in there, like Scrabble for like double points. But Jehoshabeth, the daughter of the king, she took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered, and she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. And so Jehoshabeth, the daughter of King Jehoram, so the sister of Ahaziah, who had just uh, uh, died, the wife, she's also the wife of Jehoiada. I mean, what a person she is here. She's the daughter of these, uh, this very wicked household, and yet she becomes the wife of the high priest at the time, and at a time when the high priest was a very godly man, and she's a very godly uh, woman. And so she hid this one child while all the rest of them were killed. She was able to hide the one from Athaliah so that she did not kill him. And he was hidden with them in the house of God for six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. And so Jehoshaphat, uh, the wife of Jehoiada, the high priest and uh, one of the to me, one of the real pri- uh, uh, pictures of uh, courage and faith in the Bible. When she takes and she rescues this boy, uh, one of her nephews, and he can't be more than a year old because he's going to be hidden for six years and he's going to be crowned as king when he's seven years old. And so she takes and she hides him 
in some kind of a, a storage room or spare room in the area of the temple with his nurse for six years. And so for six years that it, 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 if if uh, the you know, the woman here, the mother who is uh, Athaliah has come into reign. If she had heard about this, it'd be the death of this uh, other woman, along with the death uh, of the child. So she takes a great risk to herself and also the high priest to to uh, spare this uh, child. And the child remained in some some quarters there in the area of the temple in Jerusalem. And it was probably the safest place that they could have put him because Athaliah was a worshiper of Baal. And so the temple was the last place she was going to go. And so he was uh, in the safest place in the land that he could be hidden. Now, we looked at this in Second Kings, but it's so significant that we need to uh, look at it once again because we'll leave it and leave it for years before we get back to it if the Lord uh, tarries. At this particular point in time, the bloodline of David is hanging by a thread, by one single life, this, uh, this little boy, uh, Joash, here. And so it, it, the, the bloodline of David comes within the death of just one little baby boy of being wiped out. And all of the promises of God associated with the bloodline of David in danger of being wiped out. It all hangs upon this this particular boy and the promises that God had given concerning the bloodline of David is that he would bring his son into the world as the savior of the world. Jesus came through that bloodline. And here it looks like for six years as he's hidden away in this place, it looks like God's eternal plan for the salvation of mankind is not only hanging by a thread, but for six years in which the boy was hidden and his existence was unknown to, to everyone but just a few. It looked outwardly as if God's word had failed, that, but time would reveal that it hadn't. So for six years, everybody just looked around at one another. Wow. God's word said he's going to bring the Messiah into the world. Through the bloodline of David. And that evil woman brought an end to the bloodline of David. And for six years, everyone in, in the southern kingdom of Judah looked at it. And it looked to the human eye, to all appearances, as if God's promises, a promise from God's word, had been made untrue by a wicked woman. That's a considerable crisis of faith that the godly would have faced during that period of six years. I mean, you just put yourself in that that place. I mean, they're just their faith is just being rocked there. She got them all. She killed them all. There's nobody left. Where's the thing? God has been made a liar by this woman, this wicked woman. That's a terrible place to be in. And yet God knew that his word was not, had not been proven untrue, but that this child was hidden away and that the bloodline would continue through that child. One of the things that I love about this is that because of the fallen world that we live in, the wickedness of the world that we live in, so often God can give a promise in his word. And in the immediate, for a week, for a month, for a year, for six years, it looks like this trial 
or this work of evil or this particular thing that's come together has disproven the promise of God related to my life as a child of God. Because there's no way that promise of God can be true in the light of these circumstances. And this teaches us that all we have to do is just continue to hold on to God, hold on to his word. And it's not a matter of if, but a matter of when that promise of God comes true as it relates to our life. He will never allow a single one of our lives to disprove a single one of his promises. All of his promises, Paul said, are yea and amen. But sometimes we get in these trials. We talked about a little bit this morning. You know, we get in these trials or circumstances and our head is spinning and, uh, and we can't put two thoughts together. Our heart is spinning. The spiritual warfare is so great. Our, our, our heart is crushed by what's happened, whatever it might be that, that is going on. And, and, and it looks like God has failed and his promises have failed, but they never will. God's promises will always be proven true related to to our lives as we just hold on and and give him the time to reveal the end of the story related to his promises. And I love this uh, Jehoshaphat is she just one of the great, I think, overlooked, but great portraits of faith and bravery in all of the Bible. It's no wonder as we're going to see here in just a moment, the heart of celebration that was in the in inside of uh, the the heart of the people when this little boy was revealed to them for six years. This has been weighing on them. And then all of a sudden they realize God's word is true. God's promises are true against all human odds. And so this is kind of the background for what it is that we're going to see uh, unfold. And so chapter 23 in the seventh year. Jehoiada, the high priest, he strengthened himself and he made a covenant with the captains of hundreds. Uh, Azariah, the son of Jehoram, Ishmael, uh, the son of uh, Jeho, uh, Jehohanan, uh, Azariah, and then uh, uh, and the son of Zikri, all of those guys. Uh, he brought them together. And so these are very, very significant uh, leaders. They're uh, probably royal bodyguards or king bodyguards, military escorts, just kind of the elite units of of the royal uh, bodyguards. We call them secret service today related to the president of the United States. So they provided security to the palace and the area of the temple and all. And he brings these men and he reveals to them the fact that this boy is alive. And they keep that secret and they're excited about that fact, which tells us that even though Athaliah was reigning as queen over the land, uh, that not everybody was excited about that. And so he reveals the fact of this child's survival. And they then went throughout Judah. They gathered all of the Levites from the cities of Judah and then all of the chief fathers of Israel, the civil leaders in Israel, and they came to Jerusalem. So they didn't tell them about the fact that the boy was alive, uh, but they said, you need to come to Jerusalem because we've got some news that the high priest wants to tell us about. And so they came from the elders assembled from all around the land. And then all the assembly, they made a covenant with the king in the house of God. And he said to them, behold, the king's son shall reign as the Lord has said of the sons of 
David. And so here is the high priest saying, God's word is true. Whatever fireworks you see tomorrow, they will pale in comparison to the fireworks that are going off spiritually in the hearts of these people as they realize God's word is true after six years of looking like it had been disproven. And so here he is. Behold, the king's son shall reign as the Lord has said of the sons of David. And this is what you shall do. And here's his plan now for unveiling uh, the boy as king. This is what you shall do. One third of you entering on the Sabbath of the priests and the Levites shall be keeping watch over the doors. One third shall be in the king's house. One third at the gate of the foundation. And all the people shall be in the courts of the house of the Lord. But no one uh, let no one come into the house of the Lord except the priests and those of the Levites who serve. They may go in for they are holy but all the people shall keep the watch of the Lord. And the Levites shall surround the king on all sides once he's unveiled, every man with his weapons in his hands. I mean, this was a life and death deal that was going to come down. And whoever comes into the house, let him be put to death in order to protect uh, the king. You, be, you are to be with the king when he comes in and when he goes out. And so basically, he's got a, this guy is a spiritual leader of, of the nation, but he's got a good skill in terms of setting up kind of a little bit of a military plan here. So he's got a, he wants to unveil the king, but the problem that he's having is providing security for the king because he's going to unveil this young boy, seven years old, is the king, but this woman's got a lot of power in her hands and a lot of powerful people in the military in her hands. So he finds a way. He's going to do it on the Sabbath day when there's the most people at the temple, godly people at the temple, and he's going to do it when they're changing shifts. So when one group of Levites would come in to re- relieve the next group of Levites, one group of priests would come in to relieve the next group of, of priests in order for there to be the turnover. He said, we'll do it right then because our numbers will be doubled at a time when no one will suspect anything. They would suspect it if we doubled our numbers in the area of the temple any other time. Let's do it strategically at that moment to protect the child. And so the Levites and all Judah did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded and each man and took his men who were to be on duty on the Sabbath with those who were going off duty on the Sabbath for Jehoiada the priest had not dismissed the divisions and Jehoiada the priest uh, gave to the captains of hundreds the spears and large and small shields which had belonged to King David that were in the temple of God so he arms them for this they have the authority uh, of Uh, of the Lord related to what they're going to do here. And then he set all of the people, every man with his weapon in his hand from the far side of the temple to the left side of the temple, along by the altar and by the temple all around the king. This guy is surrounded by the toughest guys in Judah. They love the Lord, but you're not going to get through them to kill that king because the promise of God is related to this. I guarantee you, Athaliah doesn't have even a handful of men on her side that can compare to the godly convictions of these men that were surrounding that king. You did not want a battle with them. It's, uh, you, you, 
you can be spiritual and uh, frighten people in a sanctified way uh, of don't don't be messing with God's people. And they brought out the king's son. Then at this point, they unveiled him as the king and they put a crown on him. And then they gave him the testimony, a copy of the law of Moses, uh, witnessing to the fact that now he's going to reign And he's going to keep the law of Moses as the standard for the land. And they made him king. And then Jehoiada and his sons, they anointed him, doubtless with oil. And then they said, long live the king. And so everybody starts to shout, long live the king. I tell you, I'd give ten bucks to be there. Imagine being in the middle of that scene. We're here... Now, remember, all the way up to here, they've just got the, the regular guy just going. He's heading to the temple on the Sabbath because he's going to go worship the Lord and all. And he heads in there and it's like, what's with all of the weapons and all these big tough guys in a big circle? Nobody can see the seven year old kid behind them all. They don't know what's going on. All of a sudden, they're in the middle of a coronation service. The lineage of David isn't dead. God's promises aren't dead. The promise of Messiah isn't dead. So the excitement of this king, I mean, I'd have been shouting, long live the king with everything I had as well. So just the just the excitement of all of it. And it was very exciting to everyone. But one particular person, the evil, evil, you know, Athaliah. So she's hanging around somewhere and she's certainly not near the temple. So they're shouting so loud that wherever she is in her palace or whatever, she hears this long live the king. And uh, that isn't something she's heard for a long time. And so she heard the noise of the people running and praising the king. Pretty soon, everybody's just flowing from all over Jerusalem to the area of the temple, you know, coming to uh, to be a part of the ceremony. And she came to the people in the temple of the Lord. And when she looked There was the king standing by his pillar at the entrance and the leaders and the trumpeters were by the king. All the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. Also the singers with musical instruments. And, you know, not everybody's good with a sword, but they can play a mean harmonica or guitar or trumpet or whatever it is. They head into the praise and and those who led the praise. And so Athaliah. Her response to all of this, first of all, was physical. She tore her clothes, you know, a sign of grieving. This is known as chutzpah, noive. I mean, the nerve of her. So she tears and then she cries out a verbal response. Treason, treason. Everybody's being a traitor to her. You know, what's the old gag is that that's like a, in terms of chutzpah, that's like a Uh, a a child killing their parents and then throwing themselves on the mercy of the court as an orphan. She has no reason to call anybody anything, uh, but she does here. And Jehoiada the priest brought out the captains of hundreds who were over the army and said to them, take her outside under guard, slay her with a sword, uh, and slay with a sword whoever follows her. Whoever wants to be aligned with her, go ahead and kill them also. For the priest had said, do not kill her in the house of the Lord. He didn't want her evil blood to be shed uh, in that house of peace. And so they seized her and she went by the way of the entrance of the horse gate into the king's house. And they killed her there, of course, in accordance with the law of Moses, 
Uh, she had killed all, all of her children, her grandchildren. She had uh, her grandchildren and, and other blood relatives. She had also led the nation into idolatry, all capital crimes under the law of Moses. And so <clears throat> she was executed in accordance with the law of Moses. And so this the evil, evil uh, reign of hers uh, comes to an end. Uh, interesting, in the history of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, she's the only uh, woman who reigned over those kingdoms. Um, but she is not listed among the kings or the queens of, of Israel because um, she, had put her, she wasn't appointed by God into that position. And so she's not even acknowledged in terms of, of the genealogy of of the kings of, of Judah. So here she is. She looks like she's covered all of her bases. Looks like she's just got all of her ducks in a row. And, and evil under her is just going to prevail for generations in the southern kingdom of Judah. And she wakes up one morning and she has no idea that that morning is going to be so different from all of the other mornings of the six years of her reign that she's going to end up dying that day. The problem with evil is that it sows the seed for its own destruction. Evil cannot proceed and progress um, indefinitely. Because it's a parasite. It destroys everything that it attaches to. It never builds anything healthy. So it always has to end up collapsing under its own weight and giving way uh, to something that's uh, virtuous. And so uh, it, it's good to realize that as we see sometimes in different parts of the world and all or even in a, a personal situation in life where it looks like evil is prevailing. It's going to go on forever and ever. No one can break this stranglehold uh, in the situation. But even if God does not uh, actively become involved in the situation in a way that we can see it will collapse uh, on its own because evil it never evil and evil people never see all of the there are so many loose ends to being evil you can't tie up all of the loose ends you're going to lose track of that one kid that gets raised for six years in the temple you're going to lose track of something and then ultimately the collapse comes. And that's a great uh, encouragement uh, to us related to evil. And then Jehoiada, he made a covenant uh, between himself, the people and the king that they should be the Lord's people. So right there at that time, they make a commitment to God. God, all of us commit to serving you and being faithful to you. And this was something that went against long years of wickedness within the land. In other words, there was a recognition this evil woman wasn't isn't our only problem. Our problem is she got to reign because there's wickedness among the people. So we need to rededicate ourselves completely to the Lord. And that's what they did in a fresh way. And the first expression of that commitment to God is they then went to the temple of Baal, which she had established there or certainly promoted there within Jerusalem. And they proceeded to tear that temple down. They broke it in pieces, its altars and its images. And they killed uh, Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. Again, he was engaged in a capital crime of leading God's people away from the worship of the true and the living God into the worship 
of idolatry and false gods. And so that was a capital crime under the law of Moses. Uh, he knew it was. And so here uh, the justice is meted out. Uh, there is, in terms of what he was doing, uh, the, in, 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 uh, spiritually here, you, you, when you look and you say, well, nothing could be worse than murder, you know, or something like that. What he's doing is worse than anybody can do. Any religious leader in the world that draws people away from the worship of the true and the living God and into idolatry is doing worse than committing murder against people. Because murder, for all of its horror, is a, has, a, is, has a temporal consequence uh, to it, temporal ramifications. To lead somebody into idolatry, that has eternal implications. And so what he's doing was very, very serious, and thus God makes it a capital crime. Also, God speaks today in the, in the New Covenant in uh, the book of James. God says, uh, don't be many masters or teachers because you're going to face the harsher judgment. I will face a harsher judgment than you face when I stand before the Lord someday uh, because what I do, if I do it properly, there's great reward for it. If I do it improperly, then uh, I am doing great harm to people in the worst area that you can do harm in a person's life, and that is their understanding of God and their relationship with God. And so while we don't see God necessarily judging people for leading people into idolatry, while at the same time claiming to teach the Bible or claiming to know God, that judgment does come one day. And it's, a very, it, it, it's intended to keep uh, people like me uh, very, very serious about and careful about of what we say in representing the Lord. And also Jehoiada appointed the oversight of the house of the Lord to the hands of the priests and the Levites, whom David had assigned in the house of the Lord to offer burnt offerings to the Lord as it is written in the law of Moses with rejoicing and with singing as it was established by David. So under new management, everything's going back to the, how God revealed things should be to David. And he set the gatekeepers at the gates of the house of the Lord so that no one uh, who was in any way unclean could enter. And then he took the captains of hundreds, the nobles, the governors of the people, all of the people of the land, and he brought the king down from the house of the Lord, and they went through the upper gate to the king's house. They set the king on the throne uh, of the kingdom, and so all of the people uh, of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet, for they had slain Athaliah with the sword. And so this destruction of, um, the, uh, of her and of this uh, evil leadership it, it uh, produced joy and peace for the righteous. I love the Proverbs chapter 11, verse 10, related to this. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there is jubilation. And all this is just a small picture of what will happen one day when Jesus comes at his second coming. To bring an end to the reign of the Antichrist. And then the millennial reign is going to unfold. And all of the peace and the joy associated with that. Chapter 24. When Joash was seven years old. Uh, he was seven years old when he became king. He reigned for 40 years. So 47 years is how long he lived. His mother's name uh, was uh, Zabiah of Beersheba. And so 
Uh, he's seven. That's a, that's uh, quite a responsibility in the second grade. He's seven years old. Now, he probably wasn't making any greater decisions on whether to have Cheerios or to have uh, Raisin Bran in the morning for his breakfast. And so obviously he's under somebody's tutelage. He's somebody is helping him as the king until he grew into youth and adult life to then take the reins himself. And of course, the uh, that happened uh, through uh, through the high priest. Jehoiada had that kind of position. And Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord. But here's the qualification. All the days of Jehoiada, the priest. So here is this guy, and and you can take his life and you can, it it breaks up into two parts. The man that he was, as long as Jehoiada was alive, and a godly influence in his life. And then the man he became after Jehoiada died, and he allowed ungodly people to become his counselors. I mean, he's two entirely different people. And, And so he's the kind of guy that is like maybe more than even the average person, like whoever he hangs around with. So, again, it's the same point. I mean, we're going to get into vast sections of the Bible where we will not make this point for months and months and months. But it's really clustered here in this part of the Bible. Again, the importance of who we make our influencers in life. And so he was a tremendous king as long as he had the influence of this godly high priest. He was a terrible, as we'll see in just a moment, a terrible, wicked man when he came under the influence of others. And so he did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. In fact, the position of authority that he gave to Jehoiada as kind of a guardian and as a parent, as a parent Je- Jehoiada took two wives for him. Uh, it's just a record of the fact that it happened. It's not God's ideal, but that's what happened. Two wives for him, and he had sons and daughters. And we're told there, the reason we're given that information in verse 3 there is to help us to realize that this is the kind of influence that Jehoiada had in his life. He even allowed him uh, to choose his wives. I don't care who a person is. I don't want him picking my wife out. I already have one. But I mean, when I was looking for one, I wanted to make that choice myself, even if I was seven or whatever it might be. Now, it happened after this that Joash set his heart on repairing the house of the Lord. He had a great heart for the temple to be restored had been his home for six years. Very formative years. He has fond memories of it. It had also fallen into great disrepair under Athaliah because she didn't care anything about that. All of the money was going into the uh, temple of Baal there in in, uh, the area of Jerusalem. And so he gathered the priests and the Levites and he said to them, listen, here's what the plan we've got for restoring. Takes money to restore something. And so go out to the cities of Judah, gather from all Israel money to repair the house uh, of your God from year to year and see that you do it quickly. And so he said, I want you to go out. And he's, he's saying as a financial source, for the, the fixing up of this temple, I want you to go out among the people and the offerings that they would normally bring to the temple each year when they come to the feasts and would give to God. 
offerings that were intended to supply the offerings, the bulls and animals that would be sacrificed and also to uh, use to support the priests and the Levites that work, were working at the temple. They were to go out and get that money kind of ahead of time. And there was a problem with the plan there. He's got he's got like zeal without knowledge because he wants to go get that money and he wants to direct it to the construction project. But then where's the money going to come for the offerings? Where's the money going to come to support the priests? Uh, without them, the temple it can't operate uh, properly either. And so he's, he's misguided in this. And probably for that reason, we're told the Levites didn't do it quickly. They knew you, you can't accomplish both things. You can't you, you either got to have a special fund for building, the, the, restoring this temple uh, uh, or you can't pull it out of the other place because it can't accomplish both things. There's not enough resources. And so the king he called Jehoiada when there was no progress in the construction project. And this chief priest who had been uh, raising him and he said to him, why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and from Jerusalem the collection according to the commandment of Moses, the servant of the Lord and of the assembly of Israel for the tabernacle of witness for the sons of Athaliah? That wicked woman has broken into the house of God and they also presented all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord to the Baals. And so the temple is is not in the shape that it needs to be. All of the valuable articles were stripped away by her, taken to the temple of Baal. All of it needed to be replaced. And so he confronts the lack of progress. And then the king's command at the king's command, he gets more on line with how this could be accomplished. They made a chest of wood and they set it outside the gate of the house of the Lord. And now he's going to put this big old chest out in front of the doors and people could put money inside of it as a free will offering for the restoration uh, of of the temple. And so they set that out in front of the house of the Lord. They then made a proclamation to explain what it was about throughout Judah and Jerusalem to bring to the Lord the collection that Moses, the servant of God, had imposed on Israel in the wilderness. And then all of the leaders, all of the people rejoiced. They brought their contributions and put them into the chest until all had given. So they were excited about this. We've had this terrible, crummy queen for this period of time. And here now the nation is back on its uh, godly track. And and here is a king now that wants to make the temple a focus. And so they were very excited to uh, to become involved financially in it. And it was so it was at that time when the chest was brought to the king's official by the hand of the Levites, uh, that when they saw that there was much money that the king's scribe and the high priest officers came, they emptied the chest, took and returned it to its place. And they did that day by day and they gathered money in abundance. People wanted that temple to be what God intended it to be. And they really responded. And the king and Jehoiada gave it to those who did the work of the service of the house of the Lord. They hired masons and carpenters to repair the house of the Lord and also those who worked in iron and bronze to restore the house of the Lord. And so the workmen labored. The work was completed by them. And they finished, restored the house of God to its original condition and reinforced it. So they did a great job and, and uh, finished the job that they had been called to do, brought it up right 
good as new and uh, wonder of wonders, they came in under budget. Verse 14. And when they had finished, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada. And then with that money, they made from it the articles for the house of the Lord, articles for serving and offering spoons and vessels of gold and silver. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord continually all the days of Jehoiada. And so they replaced all the things that had been stripped away uh, for the, the temple of Baal. And then here was enough to restore the temple and then also to do the offerings. And so all of it came together. But Jehoiada, he grew old and uh, he was full of days and he died. So he died of natural causes and he was 130 years old when he died. So that's quite a, a nice long life. And, uh, um, and they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel both toward God and his house. So here is a, here is a civilian, so to speak, being buried among the kings. This is a position of high honor. So it speaks about how highly he was esteemed by the nation as an influence. He had, it was basically saying, he has had an influence for good upon the nation that is usually reserved for a king. And yet he did not have the power or the authority of a king. But he did it by being a righteous man and being faithful to what God had called him to do. Now, after, and that's a key, that word after here, because now we're heading into the second part uh, of uh, Joash's life and following the death of this godly influence in his life. Now, after the death of Jehoiada, the leaders of Judah came and they bowed down to the king and the king listened to them. And we know a little bit from verse 18 what the conversation must have been about. And therefore, they left the house of the Lord, their God, the Lord God of their fathers as a result of this conversation. And they proceeded to serve wooden images and idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem because of their trespass. So somehow they come to Joash and they basically say, hey, listen, you've been under the influence of this chief priest for all of these years. And um, uh, things need to change around here. You're not really being tolerant uh, toward other ways of worshiping God and this kind of thing. And we think you ought to broaden this out a little bit. And uh, Joash, he listens to what they're saying and he allows them to leave the worship of God at the area of the temple and now to reintroduce Baal worship into Jerusalem. Now, what fascinates me here about this is the fact that these evil men, they were lurking. They were waiting. They were waiting for Jehoiada to die. They had to wait 130 years. <laughs> you imagine how many of them died waiting? 130 years. God bless them. But they were waiting. However long they had to wait, and that, there's always a fresh supply of these kind of people. But it's fascinating. They would not approach the king as long as that man was alive. They just looked at themselves and they said, as long as that man is alive and influential in this nation and in that king's life, you might as well not even bother approaching that king. We have no hope of success. What a wonderful thing to be said about a righteous man. 
When the wicked can look and say, we are absolutely powerless as long as that person is alive and influential in that particular situation. It says something wonderful about that chief priest. But he dies because he's not God. And so now this great influence in Joash's life is stripped away. Now we're going to find out who this man is spiritually. When the influence is gone, and soon as, I'll tell you, as soon you find yourself in any situation where it might be a mother, it might be a father, it might be a mentor, it might be an uncle, it might be a grandmother or grandfather, someone who is a great spiritual influence in your life, and they die or they depart for some reason. You just can prepare yourself to be tested. By the devil. To find out whether you have, whether the decisions that you've been making all along under their influence is merely their decisions or whether those are also your convictions. And there'll always be that time of testing. And that when there's the removal of that kind of person where Satan will then probe to find out, is this really in you? Or are you living off the extension of someone else's spirituality? Or do you have your own relationship with God, your own convictions related to God? And so here is the probe in the form of men here. And we find out that this guy didn't have his own convictions, didn't have his own relationship with God. And and he fails the test here. But they were just waiting to probe him. And and to find out what he was uh, made of. I love the I love the the spiritual song. Though none go with me. Yet I will follow. Whether Jehoiada dies. Or whoever dies in our life. Can we look and say it doesn't matter. I appreciate them. I appreciate their influence for righteousness in my life. I appreciate the. The relationship, but my, I do not have them as a mediator in my relationship with God. I have my own relationship with God. And whatever happens to them, these are my own convictions that, that, I, that I, I'm living by here. And that's an important thing to have related to our lives. And he didn't have that. Again, he was the kind of guy that became like whoever he was around Last. Now, that's that's just the personality type from the gene pool of Adam and Eve. And some people are more afflicted by that than other people. And there's nothing we can't look and say we, we can't be faulted for who we who and what we are in Adam and Eve. But the key is to look and to recognize tendencies in our lives and to say, you know, that's me. You put me in this environment, I'm a chameleon. I become what they are in that environment. You put me in this environment, that's what I become. I hate it about myself, someone may say, but that is exactly what I am. And so here's the chameleon in the Bible. Becomes like whatever environment he's in. Not so that we look and say, oh, I'm a disgusting human being, but to recognize this is a danger to me that I have to be especially careful of, that I am not living off of somebody else's relationship with God. 
but that I have my own and my convictions are my own. And so God then, in response to this uh, apostasy here, he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. And they testified against them, but nobody would listen to God's warnings. And then the spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. This is the son of the man that Joash owes his life to. The son of the mother that he owes his life to. And God spoke through this young man, or could be quite elderly by this time. His father lived to 130. So he comes and he stood above the people and he said to them, Thus says God, why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has also forsaken you. Why, so why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? That's an underlinable verse in the Bible. Nobody can prosper by transgressing the commandments of God. You know, it's a pretty, it's a serious thing. We do baby dedications on Sunday morning where parents are making a, a commitment to raise their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. They're making a public, kind of like a marriage, you know, where you're saying you invite all these people to be a witness to the commitment that the husband and bride and groom are making to one another. And that baby dedication is that same kind of thing. We are, we are agreeing before our church family that we're going to raise this child in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And the most important thing to us related to that child is God's will for their life. Whatever that might be. And that's a very, very serious prayer that is made related to those children that we agree together in prayer on. And it's a very serious commitment that parents are making related to their children. What if God chooses your child to be Zachariah? To stand up and speak to a wicked generation. And he or she ends up being killed for being God's voice related to that. I remember listening to a, a study uh, several, several years ago. And, the, and a speaker had come in. He spoken at one of the other churches in town. And he was a missionary. And he was talking and he said, do you know what the greatest enemy to missions in the United States is? Christian parents who talk their children out of spending their lives any way that God calls them to spend their lives and tells them, make sure that you attain the American dream, get your job, get your education, get your house, get your 401ks and your time and all in place. And once you get all of that in place, then you can be, be practical first before you become a missionary. The greatest enemy to missions in the United States of America is Christian parents talking their kids out of that kind of thing. And yet here is parents that raise their child up in a very dangerous time to speak for God. And he speaks for the Lord, faithfully for the Lord. And they conspired against him, these evil men, and have evidently got the ear of the king and convinced the king to, to give the command that uh, he should be stoned with stones in the court 
of the house of the Lord. And so they did. And thus Joash, the king, did not remember the kindness which Jehoiada, his father, his spiritual father, had done to him. But he killed that man's own son. And as he died, Zacharias said, the Lord look on it. And repay. In other words, may God have the final say in this wickedness that you've done. This king owed everything to that man. He owed his life. He owed his prosperity. He owed his position. He owed everything to Jehoiada, the chief priest. And then he takes and he kills his son for speaking the truth uh, uh, from the mouth of God. What a despicable despicable human being. And so it happened in the spring of the year. Uh, Zechariah praised that the Lord would repay, that he would bring justice uh, down upon this very unrighteous act that was about to be committed against him, the shedding of innocent blood. And God did step up and repay here. So it happened in the spring of the year that the army of Syria came up against him and they came to Judah and Jerusalem. They destroyed all of the leaders of the people from among the people. So all of these evil influences, they came in and they wiped out all of the leadership. And they sent all of their spoil to the king of Damascus. And the interesting thing is that the army of the Syrians that they came to do battle with, they came with a small company of men. But the Lord delivered a very great army of Judah into their hand because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. And so they executed judgment against Joash. And so God caused Judah to be defeated despite the fact that the invading army was very small in, in, in order to make it very clear that this was God's judgment. And when they had withdrawn uh, from him, for they had left him severely wounded in all of this, uh, Joash, his own servants, conspired against him because of the blood of the sons of Jehoiada, the priest, and they assassinated him. They killed him on his bed. This, even, that was such an affront to them. And they were probably concerned about God's judgment continuing upon the nation because of the shedding of the innocent blood. And so they stepped in and they said, we're going to kill this despicable, evil human being. And so they did. And so he died and they buried him in the city of David. But they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. And so he got buried someplace, but not among the kings because he didn't live a life worthy of it. And these are the ones who conspired against him. Uh, Zabad, the son of uh, Shimeath, the Ammonitess, uh, and uh, Jehozabad, the son of Shimrith, the Moabitess. Now concerning his sons and the many oracles about him and the repairing of the house of God, indeed, they are written in the annals of the book of the kings, probably speaking of First and Second Kings. And then Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. And then we'll pick it up in chapter 25, Lord willing, next week. Let's stand together. Now, I've been uh, in front of you for one hour, six minutes and 24 seconds. So I want you to know that for some of you, it seems like I just got up here. And then others of you, you thought it was four hours. This time is a relative thing. 
But as we spent time in the word of God here, we, we see the repetition of influence, 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 influence. And again, for God to give such a large portion of his word to that lesson, to me, it tells me that God, as he watches human history, that he sees this thing played out over and over and over and over again. The needless destruction of human life because we are not careful about who we make our influencers and we do not allow the word of God and God himself by his Holy Spirit to be the great influence in our life. So we're going to head out in a lot of different directions in just a few minutes. But if that lesson and and something needs to be settled in any of our lives on some relationship tonight, whatever the cost might be for settling that relationship, that influence God's way, I, I pray none of us would be able to sleep until this passage has done its full work in our lives because we will not prove to be the exception to God's warning and his word. It's true about all of us. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your encouragements. We thank you for your warnings and we thank you, Lord, for your instruction. We thank you for the fact that we can see our carnality. We can see our flesh, our Adam and Eveness and all of these people, Lord, and yet you couple it with the instruction on how to avoid, Lord, the end of these evil people that we have looked at tonight. And, Lord, we want our lives to please you and to bless you. We don't want to hurt any more people in our lives ever again than we did before we came to know you. And so we want to live a life that glorifies you. And we pray that this great lesson would be driven very deeply in an applicational way in each one of our lives by your very thorough and firm and separating between the joints and the marrow work of your Holy Spirit. And we ask for that in each of our lives. We pray that not only ourselves, but not a single person of the influence of your word tonight in this room would become a casualty tonight, tomorrow, or the rest of their lives to ungodly counsel and ungodly influence. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.